Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host today, Robbie Martin. On a special patrons-only exclusive episode of Media Roots Radio. You're listening to the second part of my countdown of favorite political films. My personal favorites. And in our last episode, part one, of my favorite political films, we left off at the Michael Crichton political thriller, Coma, which was at number 12 on my list of my favorite political horror and sci-fi films. And now we start at number 11. Uh, This movie might surprise you that this is, to me, one of the movies to make it on my horror sci-fi list of uh, movies with strong politics. Ranking at number 11 is the James Cameron sequel to Alien, Aliens, from 1986. If you've seen the movie, you're probably like, what the fuck's Robbie talking about? This is just like a straight-up gung-ho military movie. Like, How could this possibly be like an anti-corporate or anti-government movie? Well, I'll explain to you. In the first Alien movie spoilers for those who haven't seen it it's discovered that the nostromo the spaceship that all these um basically they're like blue collar you know space truckers is kind of the way they're represented in the movie that they're all expendable and that the only robot placed on board was given instructions by the corporation to bring home this dangerous alien specimen at the expense of the entire crew that's when you learn that this corporation is not is actually the villain of the movie. It's not just the alien that's trying to kill everybody. It's that the company itself told them to go there and bring back a specimen at the expense of the whole crew. In Aliens, it starts out with Sigourney Weaver's character stranded in space for like decades in uh, stasis. She wakes up and she's basically told oh, you know, we're glad you're alive, but you did blow up like a $40 billion spaceship and now you have to pay us back for that. And they don't believe her when she explains that she had to blow it up to get rid of the alien. They don't believe the alien story at all. But when you, when it, what you come to find out, of course, is that the same corporation that was responsible for making the whole crew expendable in the first movie basically sends like a minder to go on a mission with her who's like a total corporate lackey like evil son of a bitch and it's interesting because in most of these movies like the villain is played as if he's a really heartless kind of almost like cartoonishly stone cold detached son of a bitch but in this movie it's it's played really differently and i like that about it is the is the character who's part of the wyland yutani corporation Uh, that's the minder that was sent out to sort of like monitor everything is played by Paul Reiser. And I would describe him as he's the villain of the film and he plays the character, the most sleazy, smooth talking, like corporate lawyer ever. And it actually, it's, it's one of the strongest parts of the movie and not just that. And politically speaking, there's, there's several aspects to it. So first of all, that they would colonize this planet that, it basically had, was full of these like alien weapons. So there's in aliens, the humans have now colonized the same planet that Sigourney Weaver's entire crew got murdered by the alien that came from that planet in the first one. So they've colonized the planet with like these giant nuclear reactors to just change the atmosphere of the planet. 
and they don't ever like explain that these are like green or good for the environment. They just make it seem like really industrial and really dirty and just kind of like, ah, like put that there. We're going to fucking colonize everywhere. Like we don't give a fuck. And then not just that, the, when, when they send in a mission to figure out what happened to this colony, um, they send in like a totally gung ho, like testosterone fueled paramilitary force <laughs> to go down and figure out what's going on. And that's kind of a commentary on the Vietnam War. Um, and I think even James Cameron has said so himself. We go in there with the biggest technology, the biggest guns, you know, the best weapons, and we fucking kick ass, and we, how can we lose? It's sort of like that technologically advanced army getting just totally fucking squashed by something they were completely unprepared for. And I mean, part of the reason why I didn't put like movies like Starship Troopers or Brazil on the sci-fi list is because I would describe those movies more as commentaries about society. They're not sci-fi movies with a really strong political underpinning to them. I would say they're more they they serve more as commentaries of American society. Even though Starship Troopers, I guess, some fall somewhere in the middle. So maybe could have been on either list. Coming at number ten on this list for horror and sci-fi political movies is Jacob's Ladder, 1990 horror film by Adrian Lin, um, starring Tim Robbins. Uh, Jacob's Ladder is in a lot of ways a very heady, very hallucinatory horror movie. It's not very political at first glance. The movie's opening is a war scene. And one thing that, I guess this is a total spoiler. So to really describe the movie, I have to spoil it and to explain why it's on this list. So spoiler warning, Jacob Slatter, the premise is that soldiers were given an experimental weaponized hallucinogen during the Vietnam War called bz and this drug basically just made them kill each other they didn't they just like all fucking went crazy and just started like shooting each other and thinking that they were fighting against the enemy but they just ended up fucking like massacring each other and what you learn is for the entire film the main character has actually been in a hallucinatory state the whole time so his entire life after the war is imaginary and he's actually dead by the end of the movie so adrian lynn the director He's come out and said since the movie came out, oh yeah, it's like a fantasy. There's no evidence that BZ was ever used on human beings. But this sort of movie was an experiment, you know, like what would have happened if the U.S. military had experimented on human beings with this drug? Well, it turns out that he's actually incorrect. So the guy who made a whole movie based around what he thinks is an imaginary premise of giving soldiers BZ um, actually did happen. Um, and this has been proven since the film has come out in documents that were leaked from the U.S. government that show human blood solubility with the chemical BZ. That is a leaked document showing that they injected or gave BZ to human beings in studies. That's the only way they would know that. As far as I know, maybe there's a medical expert out there that can be like, well, actually... They can do that without... Most people who have seen those documents, most journalists that saw those leaked documents that came out since, uh, including myself, have agreed that that does show proof that the U.S. government indeed did experiment on soldiers or human beings with BZ. And BZ is not like LSD. It's not like DMT. BZ is actually falls under the category of a deliriant not a hallucinogen traditionally. And what a delirium does is it actually gives you fever-like hallucinations that are totally realistic, terrifying, extremely disorienting. Like almost like a living nightmare. 
And I'm not exaggerating by saying that. Look up, you know, you're not going to find very many trip reports of people on BZ. So look up trip reports of drugs like Datura and people overdosing on Dramamine, the motion sickness drug uh, that they sell over the counter. So next on my list is a 1985 horror comedy, I guess you could call it, called The Stuff. This movie could have easily appeared on my previous list about satirical political films. The movie itself, um, as a film, not one of my favorites. I wouldn't say it's a particularly great film, but the commentary in it is very strong, and it's one of the only like horror horror movies from the 80s that has like a strong anti-corporate sort of anti-advertising message in it. And basically the plot of it is this like white bubbly ooze starts bubbling out of the ground. Some scientists discover it and then some corporation wants to market it as like a frozen yogurt product. Then ends up getting everybody addicted um, and ends up killing people and ends up turning people into like these zombie monsters. And even though the U.S. military in it is like portrayed as the, I think they like save everybody at the end or something. So for that reason, it, it, it says a point against it. But as far as like a movie that's a commentary on advertising, mass mass marketing, stuff like that, it's really strong. And I mean, the movie's basically just filled with fake commercials, TV shows, and, and media bombarding the public with this stuff called The Stuff, which is like some kind of ice cream, frozen yogurt shit. Coming number eight on my list is another Cronenberg film. And I'd say as a Cronenberg film, it's actually, I like it a lot less than Videodrome. But the reason why The Dead Zone from 1983 appears higher on this list and Videodrome doesn't even make it on this list is because it has, to me, one of the most haunting scenes in any film that actually really impacted me as a child and I've carried with me like through my whole life and that I actually think about pretty regularly. The movie is about a guy played by Christopher Walken, who has psychic abilities. It's not really exactly clearly explained exactly how his abilities work, but the way that the film portrays it, and I'm sure Stephen King fleshes this out in his book, but the way the movie portrays it is Christopher Walken's character will touch someone's hand or make physical contact with someone and get a flash of their future, something that's bad that's going to happen to them, either their death or something that they're going to be involved in. It's going to be very bad. And in the film, um, it shows how when he was younger, he fell in love with someone and then their relationship falls apart. And he's basically has this struggle where he has this ability that haunts him and that's just really a hindrance to his life. He doesn't want to have it. And so he's this already really hopeless, kind of depressed guy because of this ability he has. And... Early on in the movie, he he sort of meets this this love, uh, this this woman that he had fallen in love with so many years ago, randomly, at a political rally, and it's a political rally for her new boyfriend, who is running to be a, I believe either a senator or a congressman, played by Martin Sheen, and the movie takes a total turn when, you know, you think it's going to be just this story about a guy with these abilities you know, just his struggle with these abilities. You could have made a whole movie about that. But the movie takes like a narrative turn when he makes physical contact with this politician played by Martin Sheen. He shakes his hand 
and he instantly sees a flash of this guy's future. In the future, this politician played by Martin Sheen becomes president of the United States. And in this vision that he has, which is one of the most haunting scenes in any movie about what the U.S. government is capable of, and it doesn't even show any destruction or anybody dying, what it shows is the president of the United States has gone insane in this flash-forward sequence that he sees, this vision that he sees. And Martin Sheen's President of the United States character has gone so insane that he wants to launch a preemptive nuclear strike on Russia and basically start nuclear Armageddon for his own self-amusement and hubris. And the scene shows Martin Sheen going to the vice president's office, demanding that he turn the nuclear key, and the nuclear attack is launched, and the vision ends. So at that point on in the movie, Christopher Walken's character is basically determined to do something to stop this. And I probably already spoiled too much of it, but that's basically the the meat of the movie. And even though I don't think it's one of Cronenberg's better films, I think that just as a political message and the themes that it has in it, uh, put it at number eight on this list of political horror and sci-fi movies. Next on my list is uh, probably the oldest movie that's on here, sci-fi classic Metropolis. Um, it's considered one of the, basically one of the most important pioneering science fiction films ever and had extremely groundbreaking special effects, cinematography, very dark, abstract story. It's kind of like a, a, um, a commentary. I mean, it is. It's a blatant commentary on the Industrial Revolution. And what it shows is this beautiful utopian society above ground with these amazing you know, technological advancements, flying cars, these towering structures, this crazy utopian future displayed beautifully with these old special effects. And with the, underneath that society above ground, there's basically a slave class of people basically working themselves to death um, and controlled by this, by this sort of overlord force. I don't know if, if the, the filmmaker... Fritz Lang was actually doing a direct commentary on capitalism. I mean, it sure seems like it is, even though it's obviously more directly referring to the um, sort of corporate world and the Industrial Revolution. Uh, the film was actually made in uh, the Weimar Germany era. Um, it came out in 1927, so, you know, a while before Hitler, but still, it's probably one of the most famous German films that exists, at least to Americans. Ranking number six on the list is another Stephen King adaptation. And geez, I guess I went really overboard with the Stephen King adaptations here. But ranking this just as a film on its own merits, I wouldn't say it's it's one of my favorite films. With a core anti-government, anti-CIA, anti you know, intelligence agency message. It has a very strong core in that regard. And this movie is Firestarter from 1984. It stars Drew Barrymore. It stars George C. Scott, sort of the antagonist, the villain. And the reason he's so good in it is because he basically plays like a CIA, like a specialized CIA agent whose job it is to basically groom this little girl who has special powers, she can start fires, 
to groom her and manipulate her and trick her into allowing herself to be experimented on by the U.S. government. It's kind of like this iffy proposition where the U.S. government, the CIA, kidnaps her, and knowing how dangerous she is, they don't just like poke her with needles and, and try to like strap her down to a table because she could probably kill everybody in the room with her powers. So what they do is they use George C. Scott as sort of this like fatherly-like figure to manipulate her and groom her and to make her like basically believe that she's not being kidnapped. And I remember this, when I saw this as a kid, I thought it was particularly powerful because they kind of like put her in a room with stuffed animals, toys. Um, they treat her like she's not a prisoner. In some ways, it kind of resembles the a little bit like the plot of Fly 2, which I think is kind of a shitty movie. But this movie, is, even though it has a similar plot in that regard, it's it's definitely way more anti-government. It portrays the agents as just ruthless, psychotic killers um, who have no regard for human life. The only reason they want to keep this little girl alive is because they want to use her as a weapon. And the movie opens up sort of with this like 70s anti-government paranoia where her parents, it's shown in the opening scene that her parents both volunteered to be part of this medical experiment while they were in college or they were injected with this experimental drug and it both gave them powers. So they essentially separate her from her father, who also has powers in the movie. And so the whole movie, he's trying to go find her. The next movie appearing on this list, Logan's Run from 1976. Uh, it's sort of a future dystopian prison planet, kind of a, a, a theme sci-fi movie. It has similar themes to The Prisoner, to 1984, to Brave New World. But from what I understand, it's sort of a wholly original story. I don't know if it's actually based on anything directly. And, you know, someone's probably going to call me out on that because I probably actually don't know. Actually, I'm wrong. It's based on a book called Logan's Run by William F. Nolan and George Clayton Johnson. So it centers around these two characters who are like portrayed as, the, as these nice dudes, especially the main character played by Michael York called Sandmen. And... What their job is, is basically to terminate or to murder any quote-unquote runners. But essentially the concept is everybody's in this sort of dystopian world, this totalitarian world, where they can order a prostitute like through their computer and it just like appears. They're, they're lavished with all these pleasures. They have like orgy parties um, that anybody can just go and fuck their... There's all this stuff that kind of resembles Brave New World, but the main premise of the movie is that they've all been brainwashed into believing they all ascend uh, in this spiritual ritual called Carousel, um, where they, at age 30, I, I think it was changed from the book at age 21 is when it ends in the book, but that at age 30, you're supposed to go take part in this ritual called Carousel where you essentially kill yourself and this ring of fire floating to the top of the auditorium. And everybody watches and cheers on as you do this. And then it turns out in the movie, spoilers, spoiler warning, that the reason why they're doing this is because they don't have the resources to allow people to live throughout their entire age. And at some point in the film, uh, one of these Sandmen who escapes... Um, and realizes what's going on, finds, comes across an old man who is living outside of this whole society just by himself. And they've never seen anybody over the age of 30 before. So the end of the movie is kind of in this beautiful scene, this escaped 
uh, Sandman character, former assassin, he brings back the old man to this society. Yeah, it's just sort of this beautiful, touching moment where it's they, there's actually no nothing said. Um, it's just sort of a visual thing where it's like the whole movie you've known that this whole society has been brainwashed into believing uh, that you don't you don't live past thirty essentially, and they're all sort of brought out to meet this old man. It, it's great. It's it's one of the only sci-fi movies that I feel like has an ending without anything spoken. That's like really really powerful. Besides maybe 2001 A Space Odyssey is actually not on this list because I don't really consider it a political movie really. And it doesn't really have much commentary on society, like casting a negative light on on American society, I don't think. Maybe the book of 2001 does more in some ways, but not the movie doesn't. The movie is kind of more of just like a really good artistically done film, kind of devoid of politics, I feel like. Number four on this list of horror and sci-fi films with a good, strong political core, The Original Night of the Living Dead by George Romero. And I don't really have much to say about this movie because I feel like it's already well understood now why this movie was so groundbreaking on like for the societal political message that it had in it. But just in case anyone doesn't remember or hasn't seen Night of the Living Dead, made in 1968, the civil rights struggle was still very much in full swing. The main character in the film is a woman who escapes to like an empty shack thinking that she's the only one to escape basically a zombie apocalypse that's happening with no explanation. In the original Night of the Living Dead, I mean, it's still arguably one of the best zombie movies. And while I actually think Dawn of the Dead is a stronger film, just on the merits of being a film, I think Night of the Living Dead deserves a higher ranking as like a political message because... It had some really important kind of messages and reflections about how racist American society was at the time. So you have this woman, this white woman, who's trapped in this house trying to escape zombies. And as soon as she realizes she's not the only one that's going to be sharing this house trying to escape from the situation outside, that a black man joins her to hole up in this house from the zombie apocalypse. And the movie basically portrays her as extremely frightened of not just what's happening outside, but also very, very, very intimidated by this black man who's portrayed in the movie, you know, for the time, very, very, like, reasonable, not in a racist stereotype or caricature at all. So watching it now, you might think, like, why are they making her so afraid of him? You know, like, why is she why is she going so nuts? Intentionally baked into the story of the movie that this black guy is is really scary to her, too. So that part of the movie is really interesting and it sort of carries through the whole movie and spoiler alert. I mean, one of the most interesting things that makes the, this message so strong in the, in the end of the movie is a bunch of like kind of like vigilante zombie hunters come through town to clean things up. And as soon as they see the black character in the movie, pop his head up in a window, they shoot him and kill him. And not because he's a zombie. They they say they thought he was a zombie. But they just kill a black guy in the middle of the zombie apocalypse. Like for no reason. And unfortunately, Tom Savini did a remake of, of Night of Living Dead in the 1990s. And this is the special effects like expert who was helping George Romero with all his later films. 
the movie is actually excellent remake of Night of the Living Dead. It's almost, it's not a shot for shot remake, but it almost is. It follows the plot extremely closely, but for some reason, it removes the strength of the sort of societal commentary at the end of the movie, where when this, all the same stuff happens, they end up shooting the black lead character at the end in, this, in the same way, you know, like white vigilante kind of like zombie hunters come through town and uh, they, they shoot and kill the black character. But the difference in the remake is in the remake, they make it so he turns into a zombie before they shoot him. Which is kind of like, wait, so you're taking away the whole message of the, the ending here. Which I just find incredibly strange. But I remember the remake actually being great. And a lot of it actually still is. Until I watched it recently, it was just like, why would they change the ending? It's actually one of the only things they changed in the whole movie. Because otherwise, it's a very, very faithful remake. Number three on my list of, uh, of political sci-fi and horror films is Return of the Living Dead from 1985. And this may seem really silly to people that I'm ranking Return of the Living Dead higher than Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. Well, the reason I am is actually very simple. As a political movie with strong, very strong anti-government messages in it, I think it's actually one of the best horror movies in this regard. Return of the Living Dead is from 1985. It's actually not related to Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. It was written by Dan O'Bannon. It was not an, a sequel to Night of the Living Dead or Dawn of the Dead, even though the title Return of the Living Dead makes it seem like it is. But what's so interesting about the movie, and this is just a non-political compliment about it, is that it actually references the movie Night of the Living Dead. And like one of the characters sits another character down at the beginning, and he's like, you know that movie Night of the Living Dead? Well, that shit really happened. And, and I got one of these barrels down in my basement that fell off a truck that caused the original like zombie apocalypse that that movie was about. Even though that movie is an exaggeration, that shit fucking happened. And you want to go take a look at this thing? I got one down in my basement right now. So that's how the movie opens before the credits even come on, which I think is absolutely brilliant. And I'm sure other horror movies have done this since, but that broke my brain when I first saw it. I was like, holy fuck. I think I probably saw it when I was maybe like eight or nine years old. So it probably actually like seemed real to me when I first saw it because of that just that one scene at the beginning I was like in you know I was like this is real and uh but what's great about this movie and I'm gonna have to spoil things from this point on so if you don't want any spoilers about Return of the Living Dead and why I've ranked it number three on my all-time top 15 political sci-fi and horror film list stop listening now but basically this movie is one of the strongest anti-US military horror sci-fi films ever made because the the basic premise is the military was doing some weird experiments on dead bodies and one of these dead bodies dropped off of a truck and caused a zombie apocalypse that they had to cover up and clean up now some of these barrels um, were still floating around out there including some guy who worked at a medical supply warehouse says he accidentally gets shipped one of these barrels from the U.S. military 20 years ago, and he's kept it in his basement ever since. So it basically starts with the U.S. military causing the problem, um, and it's almost like a commentary on not cleaning up uh, like radioactive military sites. The military lost this zombie they were experimenting on 20 years ago, but let's go check it out. Let's just like go look at it. 
And when they go look at it, of course it leaks, the barrel leaks and like explodes and all this like harsh gas cloud comes out that's like green. It looks like like mustard gas or something. It, it basically makes the dead come back to life. Uh, this is a big time spoiler if you don't want to be spoiled, but the, the movie is portrayed in a really, it's a really creative zombie movie. Um, I wouldn't call it a, a horror comedy, but it definitely has some funny shit in it that's that's uh, definitely tongue-in-cheek. The the medical supply warehouse that this main character works at, they have a product that are split dogs, like actual real dead dogs that are split down the middle. And after the zombies all start coming back to life, or the dead people start coming back to life, also all of his products in his warehouse come back to life. So there's a scene where he's literally beating up one of these split dogs with a with crutches, um, and it just keeps like barking like a puppy when he's hitting it on the ground. It's it's really over the top. But the movie basically ends by showing you that the real villains aren't the zombies because it was just like an accident. It was like a military accident. The real bad guys in this movie is the U.S. government and the U.S. military. And the movie ends with there's a phone number. This is one of the most brilliant things about the movie. I think is there's a phone number on the barrel saying, if you find this, please report it missing to this phone number. And when basically someone finally at the end of the movie remembers that there's a phone number on that barrel and calls it in, because by this point, there's like thousands of zombies totally taking over. Cops are completely overrun. He calls the number and it triggers a series of events where this like really cold... series of exchanges occurs between all these like military bureaucrats that eventually results in like some young kid in some like Washington mountain range um, by himself running like a nuclear missile silo is told instructed to launch a nuclear bomb at the town that the barrel was found in where the zombie apocalypse is happening. So literally the end of the movie is like them calling it in thinking oh the military's going to come they're they're on their way to save us and then they hear this sound in the background they're like oh what is that and it's like the sound of a distant tiny like dropping like old school like bomb drop sound effect like Dee-r-r-r-r. the movie literally ends with a nuclear mushroom cloud i mean it's fucking it's perfect so not only did the us military cause the zombie apocalypse in the movie, they also decided to try to end it by nuking the entire town. Ranking number two on my list of political horror and sci-fi films is The Day the Earth Stood Still, uh, the original from 1951. Do not watch the remake with Keanu Reeves and Jennifer Conley. Um, it's, it's terrible. The Day the Earth Stood Still, the original, is... It's got some classic sci-fi elements, some, some lines. If you haven't even seen the movie you'll recognize lines and imagery from it as you're watching it. It's like that much of a classic. It has iconic, like sort of like alien creatures. Um, not really an alien. It's kind of a robot, I suppose. Um, but it's a wonderful, I guess you could call it like a fish out of water story. It's about an alien visiting Earth. But the alien is the main character in the movie and is portrayed almost like more human than human. He like understands humans more than they understand themselves. And the entire movie is basically an anti-militarism commentary. Anti-military, anti-war, anti-military commentary. And it does not even once like throw any shade at 
Russia in in making it seem like they're more evil than the U.S. or anything like that. It focuses almost a hundred percent of its anti-war and anti-military message on the United States government and society during that time period. So this is like literally right after World War II. Um, most people, you know, had a very positive view of World War II at the time. Um, it wasn't considered really that tragic of an event, except for like the Holocaust. So the day the earth stood still being made in 1951, I mean, it's very impressive and actually very different from a lot of films at that time, which most sci-fi films were in some ways commentaries on the nuclear age, nuclear radiation and nuclear bombs. They weren't necessarily indictments on the military as a whole and just a militaristic mindset that the boomer generation was sort of soaked in at the time. It's a touching film the acting is really good for the time and i think even you know as a sci-fi film it has really good script for the time period and the movie as a whole i just think is a beautiful story and it's not a necessarily a happy story either it shows that maybe you know certain human being characters are good people like individuals can be good people but it really does show humanity in an ugly light and I guess in certain ways, like movies like E.T. and other movies that portray like the U.S. government or like feds looking really kind of evil, this movie was definitely probably a big inspiration on that. And you might be surprised what my number one political horror and sci-fi film is based on what I've already mentioned and maybe just because you would maybe not normally think about it as a political film because the politics of it are very, very much in the background they inform and shape the entire story, and without them, there wouldn't really be a story. But it's not actually like the main component of this movie. It's sort of the backdrop. It's it's more not just the backdrop, like it's not like the environment of the movie. It's the kind of like the exposition that's supposed to happen even before the plot of the movie. Um, and this movie is the original Terminator from 1984 by James Cameron. Everybody here is probably listening, probably seen the Terminator already, or maybe you've at least seen Terminator 2, um, which is also a great film. Terminator 2, I think, is one of the most rewatchable movies of all time. Really, really well-made movie. But I think the first one, Terminator 1, is a much stronger film. Not just because Terminator 2 is basically a rehash of it, but because at the time, I mean, for being made during the Reagan era, the advent of like home computing, the Apple IIe and uh, DOS was coming into popularity. Windows didn't even exist yet, but the idea of like home computing was a really trendy thing at the time. Um, the premise of Terminator is basically that the U.S. government becomes so hubristic that they let artificial intelligence actually run a self self-autonomous and autonomous software program that controls our nuclear arsenal and can decide when to attack based on threat analysis. So this program that humans develop called Skynet becomes self-aware and decides to launch a nuclear exchange between the United States and Russia in order to basically try to destroy as many humans as possible. I think that's just a great um, message at its core. And actually, maybe this makes me nuts, but I think that that premise in a lot of ways is more realistic 
than almost any of the other premises I've listed here as like a potential horrifying sci-fi scenario that could actually come true. I've mentioned a lot of zombie movies, alien movies, you know, movies with supernatural elements. But this movie, other than the time travel aspect of it, I think is actually very plausible. (laughs) I mean, we already see it with Boston Dynamics. It's kind of creepily close. And I don't mean like we're going to let, you know, the nuclear arsenal be controlled by artificial intelligence, but like, I mean, what happens when artificial intelligence actually becomes self-aware? It just brings up a lot of interesting things. And just from a filmmaking um, narrative point of view, this movie, I think, is really, really strong. The acting by Michael Bean, um, playing Reese, uh, the main human character, comes back through time to save Sarah Connor. Uh, Excellent performance by him, easily his best in any movie. I just think it's a really strong entry into sort of the political movie world. And as far as a sci-fi film, as just a sci-fi film, I would say it's one of the best science fiction films ever made. And it's also like a crossbreed between sci-fi and horror and sort of that classic, you know, way that that classic way that a lot of 80s movies blended sci-fi and horror. I'd say it sort of falls under that same umbrella that Alien and Aliens does, or, or even the original Predator. That's sort of like four movies that really, I think, stand above almost any other 80s sci-fi horror movie. Also amazing, dark, um, kind of like proto-industrial synthesizer music from Brad Fidel in Terminator. Now I'm going to move on to my second to last category of political films for this episode of Media Roots Radio. Um, This one's a shorter list. Uh, I only could come up with my five favorite war films uh, that have a strong political message in them. So I'll start with number five. I'm putting this one as fifth on the list because I'd say it's one of the only World War II films uh, that is actually like a commentary on the absurdity of war and just the futility of it and and just basically making horrible situations seem funny or amusing. I, I'm not really doing it justice, but basically there there is a Catch-22 series right now. I think that's on Amazon Prime by George Clooney. I've heard it's not very good. Um, but this film adaptation of the Joseph Heller novel Catch-22 from 1970, um, it stars Alan Arkin as the main character, Yosarian. It's pretty pretty damn good. I mean, I don't think it really does the book justice. I imagine Yosarian much differently than someone like Alan Arkin. So to me, it was just really weird casting. Um, his acting is very low-key in the movie. It's done in a really different way than I would have expected. But just as a film, being a commentary on what World War II was like and how fucked up aspects of it were and just how weird it was, Catch-22 is probably the best film out there that really captures that. And I guess just some other honorable mentions before I'll go in. Um, some other war movies that are uh, about war that have good political commentary in them. Um, another one is uh, the Slaughterhouse-Five adaptation based on the Kurt Vonnegut book. It also sort of has World War II commentary in it. Um, Apocalypse Now 
like Francis Ford Coppola is definitely one of the best Vietnam War movies out there. There are two other movies that I'm going to mention that I think are stronger movies in terms of their critique of the U.S. government and the war itself. Deer Hunter is also another honorable mention in this category. That one more reflects on the sort of the PTSD aspect, I guess, or the the adrenaline junkie aspect of, of fighting in a war and how much that fucks you up when you try to come home in that adjustment um, and how some people just don't adjust. And then um, another one... And I haven't seen this movie in a long time, so you might actually be embarrassed by putting it on this list. But I remember the film War Games, uh, the 1980s sort of like Cold War thriller with Matthew Broderick. Um, I remember it being pretty chilling and sort of having some good commentary about the sort of paranoia on the U.S. government side about the Cold War and you know just commentary on the Cold War era. Um, the movie has a really chilling opening scene where I don't know if it's like a test or an experiment where they're basically doing a simulated nuclear strike. And I guess the guys in the control room don't realize it's a simulation. So they think it's a, it's a, they really actually have to turn the key and type in the code to launch the nuke. And the other guy won't do it. Um, he's refusing to turn the key and he's just like having a panic attack. And then, so the other guy basically points a gun to his head. And I don't know, I mean, it was a very, probably a very exaggerated scene. I don't know what the actual military protocol is if the other person doesn't turn the key when they're supposed to. Um, but the opening scene of War Games makes it appear that there's some kind of fail-safe where, you know, you're supposed to kill or, or threaten the other person if they refuse to turn the key at the same time. So those are the honorable mentions for this category. I already mentioned Catch-22, which is number five on this list. Uh, number four is kind of an overlooked Stanley Kubrick movie from 1957 called Paths of Glory, starring Kirk Douglas. And it's a it's a World War One movie. It doesn't really have any commentary about the United States government or anything like that. But the commentary on war and basically following orders, following an order that you know will just get you killed for no reason. And, and just on a really simplistic level, I feel like this movie has a very strong narrative and very strong critique of war and, and the military bureaucracy and how expendable um, human life is to some of these military generals, really in any, you know, it could be in any government. Number three on this list of war films that have strong political message and anti-war critique is the Oliver Stone film Platoon from 1986. I mean, this movie is all kinds of fucked up and has a really sort of strong um, anti-war message buried in it. It's not one of Oliver Stone's strongest films, um, but it's definitely one of the strongest uh, anti-war films that come out in the 1980s. And there's definitely other Vietnam War films that are pretty strong as well. I don't think they're as good as Platoon, just a well-rounded narrative. Um, but in Platoon... The main antagonist of it is just like a, a commander of this platoon who just turns into an evil son of a bitch. And they're just having to work around this obstacle, which starts out most mostly as an obstacle and then just become he becomes the movie's villain as the movie goes on. Number two on the list of political war movies um, is Stanley Kubrick's 1987 film Full Metal Jacket. So if we're going for Vietnam War movies, I think Full Metal Jacket is by far 
the best one that really hones in on how fucked up the war was, basically. And also the real, like a very realistically portrayed attitude of American soldiers. Some of the dialogue in it is like pretty extreme. It almost seems like from like a modern Quentin Tarantino movie in some regards. But what's interesting about the movie is it's not just a critique on the war itself. Only the second half of the movie is actually about the Vietnam War. The first half is all about boot camp and like how much that fucks you up and the and just like how fucked up being in the military is even when you're not fighting in war. So it's it's people who are big time film buffs and Stanley Kubrick fans say that it's one of Stanley Kubrick's more flawed movies. I don't really see that with it. I mean, there might be some like movie mistakes that I've really never noticed in it, but I, I think it's like one of his better films. Matthew Modine plays the lead character in it. I'm trying to think of who else is in it that's famous. I feel like he's the most famous guy. I think Vincent D'Onofrio plays Private Pyle, another character in the first half of the movie. But other than that, I cannot think of any of the actors' names in it. But it's a really dark, really hopeless-feeling movie, and it definitely doesn't bring you to some kind of happy conclusion or story arc that is pleasurable. starts off as being a guy who's kind of prides himself as almost being like, the squeaky wheel being allowed to get away with sort of protesting the war by joking or writing for the you know the the military newspaper that he that's his job in the war he doesn't actually even have to fight you know he's able to avoid all these situations that other people in the war had to do and then and then sort of it culminates with just this sort of this event in the in the ending that just leaves you feeling totally hollow um and it's it's great for that reason so uh, definitely one of Stanley Kubrick's best films, too. I mean, I, I personally enjoy it more than some of his films, like The Shining and even A Clockwork Orange. But I would still rate, like, 2001 A Space Odyssey and another film I'm about to mention, uh, much higher than Full Metal Jacket. So if I was going to rank my number one favorite war movie with the strongest politics, it would absolutely have to be Dr. Strangelove from 1964. I don't think anything actually even comes close to Dr. Strangelove because even though there were a shitload of Cold War movies made, none of them were sort of an indictment on what the Cold War meant like this movie was. And also portrayed America in a much more evil and just stupider and crazier light than even the Soviet Union. And so I really, I really, really appreciate that movie just on a political level for those reasons. I mean, when I first fell in love with Dr. Strangelove, I wasn't political at all. I didn't actually care that much, actually, about the politics in it. But now that I've learned more about the Cold War and just that I've grown up, you know, I first saw it maybe when I was like 14 years old. And I loved it instantly. Because I was already a fan of Stanley Kubrick at the time. Now, when I watch it, I, it just takes on a whole new meaning for me. And of course, it has the amazing performance by Peter Sellers, who plays three different roles in the film. He was originally supposed to play four different roles. He plays the president, plays Colonel Lionel Mandrake, and he also plays the lead, the titular character, Dr. Strangelove. And the titular character is basically like a parody of Henry Kissinger. So in the movie, you have like an extremely over-the-top, psychotic, almost like James Bond villain esque character with a German accent who's supposed to be a parody of Henry Kissinger. And that's the titular character. But the movie is just amazing because basically uh, it involves a rogue general 
um, on this military base who decides to launch a nuclear strike of his own against the Soviet Union. Even though he's gone rogue, it's not an indictment on the whole of the U.S. government. It's chilling in certain ways because it's a plausible, it's a scenario that in some ways could have happened. Like some rogue general could have decided to try to launch his own nuclear, preemptive nuclear strike on the Soviet Union without consulting with the higher-ups. Um, luckily, nothing like that has ever happened, at least that we know of. But other than the fact this movie is actually like a dark comedy, it does a really good job of showing how that might actually play out. And what ends up happening in the film, spoiler warning for Dr. Strangelove, can't even believe I have to say that, it turns out that Russia actually has what they call a doomsday machine so that if the United States nukes Russia, it'll trigger like a series of nuclear explosions that'll just blow up the whole world. So it's like a mutually assured destruction on like an absurd, absurd level. And so the movie is dealing with all these different brilliant commentaries at the same time. Like the idea of like mutually assured destruction is obviously examined. Um, Henry Kissinger is parodied. Um, the president is portrayed as just an incompetent fool, uh, completely bumbling. The guy who's in charge of the military is also portrayed as completely bumbling and just like a testosterone-fueled moron. And when they actually, in the movie, spoilers, um, when they finally do get in contact with all the bombers, they call them all back except for one because in their training, they teach the pilots to fly under the radar and to fly really low to the ground so that they can't transmit a radio signal to them telling them to come back. And the plane happens to be piloted by a guy played by, like, um, I, I forgot his name. He's this really, he was a famous, like, country western actor at the time. He's also in Blazing Saddles. But they portray him as this, like, real red-blooded, patriotic American guy with a cowboy hat who he can't even get the missile doors open by the time they're over their bombing site. So he actually sits on top of the missile and rides the missile down to the into the Soviet Union, the nuclear missile, like he's on top of like a bull in a rodeo, swinging his cowboy hat around. And then, of course, that's the end of the movie. Doomsday Machine, everybody dies. The movie ends with a like a beautiful sort of like ballad pop song playing in the background with just a series of nuclear explosions, like real photography of, of nuclear bombs. Um, and I and I actually have to say, I mean, obviously for anyone who's not aware of this, who knows both my own work and the work of uh, of Stanley Kubrick, the subtitle of Dr. Strangelove is How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. And just some backstory about this movie that's interesting is Stanley Kubrick was working on this screenplay with a guy named Terry Southern and Peter George. And originally... Um, it was actually based, loosely based on, I mean, originally it was supposed to be an adaptation of Peter George's book, Red Alert, which was like a very serious, straightforward Cold War thriller. So what ended up happening is when Stanley Kubrick and Peter George were trying to hash this out, they were just getting like punchy and like writer's block every time. So they just started just like making like an alternate concept, like a comedy version of the book. And it grew into such a big monster distraction from what they originally set out to do that they ended up actually making the film a comedy version of this original concept. So that's how the that's how the film even 
became a black comedy in the first place. That completes my top five political war movies. And for the last category, I'm going to count down my 10 favorite political films based on true events or real people. So I'll start with some honorable mentions that didn't make it onto this list. Uh, starting with the 2014 film, Kill the Messenger, directed by Michael Cuesta. Uh, the film is based on two separate books, Kill the Messenger and the actual book originally written by Gary Webb, Dark Alliance. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with this film, it was a long time coming. It had been talked about for a long time. I remember hearing about people trying to make a film based on Gary Webb. I feel like it was as long ago as like 2008. I remember hearing things about it. Um, it was kind of one of those projects that had been batted around for quite a while, similar to that Bill Hicks autobiographical film that Russell Crowe was supposed to star in um, that never materialized. You hear about these things once in a while where it's like a important political topic or figure is going to have a movie made about them and it just it just stays in this production hell, pre-production hell forever. There's a similar movie. Another example of that is Paul Giamatti was supposed to star in a Philip K. Dick autobiographical movie um, that never materialized. But this one actually did materialize and they're able to get a great cast, a specifically lead actor playing Gary Webb, uh, Jeremy Renner, which I think is kind of ingenious casting. The movie itself is pretty strong. It's not a happy film. It doesn't end, you know, with like a positive or, or emotionally satisfying story arc. Freeway Ricky Ross uh, is portrayed in the movie. This movie kind of went under the radar. It didn't even really have a proper theatrical release, which is surprising given that Jeremy Renner was the lead character in the film. Another honorable mention is the film Syriana. It's directed by Stephen Goggin. He is the writer of Steven Soderbergh's Traffic. So if you've seen Steven Soderbergh's Traffic, which is about the futility of the drug war, I would say it's actually one of Steven Soderbergh's weaker films in his whole filmography, even though it's like one of his most well-known if you've seen that film, Syriana is like a much more political uh, thriller that's formatted in a very similar way to Traffic. It has several concurrent plot lines all going at once with totally different characters that have virtually nothing to do with each other, uh, but they're all sort of loosely connected in some way. Probably the biggest stars in the film are George Clooney and Matt Damon. But one of my favorite aspects of this film is something that kind of uh, is not a, a huge component of it, but it's something that really stuck with me and still kind of chills me when I watch the film, even though arguably this film was written by um, sort of a limited hangout, I think ex-CIA agent um, named Robert Bear, based on a book of his called See No Evil. So even though a lot of the things he says you know, are probably limited hangout narratives, he does hone in on one really interesting aspect of sort of the war-making culture in D.C., and of course, for me, that's the think tank culture. And in the film, this might be a spoiler, so please fast forward if you don't want to have anything in this movie spoiled. But later in the film, 
a think tank forms called the Committee for the Liberation of Iran. And this think tank is headed by uh, a guy played by actor Chris Cooper. Robert Baer has actually said after the film was released, or after the book came out rather, that the Committee for the Liberation of Iran is a direct reference to the Foundation for Defense of Democracies think tank operating out of Washington, D.C. And the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, go back and listen to our recent interview with Eli Clifton. We did an entire Media Roots episode about the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Essentially, it's a more narrowly focused think tank in D.C. headed by a bunch of hardcore neocons to do regime change in Iran. They actually now have a bunch of people working closely with the Trump administration and even some of their own people inside the Trump administration. And I think uh, Syriana sort of sits in an interesting place in the in these political movies that I'm reading off to you because it, it was released during the time when things were very intense in this country. It was the post-9-11 fascist Bush era. And for Syriana to come out in 2005, um, similar to how Southland Tales came out, I believe in 2004, it really made it the movie itself have a deeper impact and more emotional resonance because all these horrible things in the real world were happening all around us while this movie was commenting on several of them. Another honorable mention before I actually get to the top 10 political films based on true events and real people is a pretty obscure movie, very, very obscure movie, and it stars an actor who actually is popping up in a lot of these movies, um, that I'm going to be reading to you. Actually, I think maybe three or more uh, that he's in. So I don't know if Christopher Plummer's politics are, are just really good and that's why he chose some of these roles, but it, it could be. There was a film that was released in 2002 on Canadian television, a TV. It was, it was only broadcast on television. It was never released in theaters. Um, it's based on a very obscure event where CIA agents were basically accused of murdering a Canadian diplomat during an interrogation because they thought that he was a Soviet spy. Now, I've already spoiled to you the main part of the plot. It's a known historical event. Christopher Plummer plays the diplomat, and he's really the only famous actor in it, but pretty much the whole movie is just showing how he was maligned as being the spy unfairly, inaccurately, and the CIA basically just interrogated him until he died in their custody. Pretty disturbing story. It really happened. The Canadian diplomat's name is John Watkins. Uh, you can look him up online. Um, the movie itself uh, is also available. I think it's on YouTube. The whole movie, someone uploaded it there. It's called Agent of Influence from 2002. The actual interrogation of John Watkins took place in 1964. So it seems kind of interesting that the that someone would decide to make a movie about this in 2002. And it's probably has something to do with the fact that the idea of CIA interrogations and torture in, in the United States became a popular topic of discussion again with the war on terror. I would imagine it had something to do with that, but I actually have no idea. Could have just been a coincidence. But it goes to show that when films, powerful films and narratives come out that are based on these real real incidents or real people like Wormwood by Errol Morris, like this um, Agent of Influence film, they come out way, way after the actual event. So once all the dust has settled 
And once we sort of get over that hump of being, you know, accused of being a conspiracy theorist for saying or suggesting that the CIA murders people, these things eventually sort of come out and see the light of day. Uh, Wormwood was probably more popular, but it's good that something like this actually saw the light of day and just is out there as a quasi-historical document about these events. Because sometimes a film about something like this happening is one of the most long-lasting, resilient ways to sort of lift this story up in history versus just a Wikipedia entry or something like that. So part of the reason I'm doing this episode and listing out all these films is because, especially these films that are based on real events and real people, I believe that they serve as some of the strongest examples we have of how to, I guess you could say, indoctrinate the public into understanding our terrible legacy as a country. Starting with number 10 on my list of uh, political films based on true events and real people is the 2008 film Milk by Gus Van Sant. Spoiler warning, I guess, for anyone who doesn't know what happened to Harvey Milk, because I'm going to be going into the plot um, of what what happened in his life. Fast forward a little bit if you don't want to be spoiled. But I would say this is probably Gus Van Sant's strongest modern film. Uh, he's got some interesting earlier films. I think To Die For is a particularly strong film of his from earlier in his career. But I'm not really too big of a fan of his in general. But I will say that Milk is a very, very powerful film and that has a very strong political message that's kind of broadly appealing and probably a great introduction to the you know general public who's never heard of Harvey Milk or doesn't know anything about his history. And for those who don't know, Harvey Milk was the third openly gay politician in the United States to ever be elected to public office. He was the first openly homosexual. He was the first openly gay person to be elected to any public office in California. Um, he became a member. Uh, he, he was elected to the Board of Supervisors of San Francisco. Um, another member of the Board of Supervisors, Dan White, who was a socially conservative man, um, had a very complex relationship with Milk. And spoilers... Uh, this all culminated with the very. This all culminates with a very tragic murder of not just Harvey Milk at the hand of Dan White inside City Hall, but also Mayor Moscone of San Francisco. Dan White killed both of them inside City Hall. Uh, the movie is very tragic, very sad, um, very emotional, and I highly recommend it. It also has a really great subdued score by Danny Elfman. It was one of the one of Danny Elfman's first sort of uncharacteristically Danny Elfman sounding scores that I heard, where I was actually very moved by it. Um, because there was a certain point in Danny Elfman's scoring career where he started to just make a lot of music that didn't sound anything like what we had known from him before. All of Danny Elfman's scores for years and years, you know, all sounded very, very specific and like a very, very telltale Danny Elfman score. Um, this was not the case. This was just something that sounded like he was composing almost like in someone else's voice. And I think it's a, actually a really powerful score. 
The movie stars Sean Penn as Harvey Milk. It stars Josh Brolin as Dan White. Um, I think Emil Hirsch, James Franco are also in the film playing various roles. And it's one of the only films that I've that I know of that shows what happened during like Stonewall, um, showed the raids of like gay clubs. So it goes into a lot of the politics from the time of like the struggle of gay rights, not just in San Francisco, but nationwide. And it also follows the trajectory of Anita Bryant trying to pass that law in California, trying to pass the proposition to ban gays from being able to teach at any public schools. And it shows how that was crushed and defeated um, and how Harvey Milk was very involved in trying to um, lobby against that law. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the movie. Um, It's definitely one of the best Hollywood films ever made about like the historical struggle for gay rights in this country. Um, But it's also really impactful because because it follows the life of Harvey Milk and it shows his tragic demise. And uh, the role is played absolutely beautifully by Sean Penn. I mean, it's easily one of his strongest um, acting performances of his whole career. Ranking at number nine on my list is the 1980 film Brubaker. And I actually didn't know this film was based on uh, true events when I saw it. But I think it's a really powerful film that basically focuses on the corruption of the American jail system and how corrupt and fucked up prisons were, especially in the South around uh, 1970. So the movie takes place in 1969. But basically the plot is this, this prison warden, this warden played by Robert Redford poses as a prisoner in this prison in order to reform the prison. And in the process of being a prisoner there, he realizes the depth of how, depraved and fucked up it actually is and uncovers like mass graves and stuff like that so it's a really powerful film he you know he pretends to be a prisoner for a great deal of the film and the reveal of him as the new warden for the prison is a really powerful scene it's one of the better robert redford performances i've seen um and i think the movie sort of has a timeless message to it um it's actually based on uh, a real person uh, named warden thomas morton he was the co-author of a book called Accomplices to the Crime, the Arkansas Prison Scandal with a guy named Joe Hyams. So, of course, the man, the best part of the movie, the fact that this guy pretended to be a prisoner and he was actually the warden going undercover, is not really what happened to this guy, Thomas Morton. He was just basically fired from his job for blowing the whistle on this extremely corrupt uh, state penal system. But definitely check out the film. It's just a little over two hours long. The reason I'm ranking it number nine on here is because it's actually a really good film. Like, I, I really enjoyed it. I haven't seen it in many years, but it really stayed with me when I saw it. It's directed by Stuart Rosenberg, and the screenplay is written by W.D. Richter. Coming at number eight on my list of political films based on true events or real people is the 1989 Oliver Stone film, Born on the Fourth of July starring Tom Cruise. So the film is based on this um, this book that actually came out a long time before the film was made. It came out in 1976. It's called Born on the Fourth of July. It's the autobiography of a veteran named Ron Kovic. Um, he was actually paralyzed in the Vietnam War, just like the character 
is in the film Born on Fourth of July, played by Tom Cruise. He was actually born on the Fourth of July. Uh, he was born on July Fourth, nineteen forty-six. And according to Wikipedia, there's actually not that many differences from the film, uh, the book to the film. It's a really tragic movie. It basically charts the life of this guy who was born on the 4th of July, who was so patriotic, and he was like his local town war hero. And when he actually goes and fights in the war, one of his first fight firefights ever in the Vietnam War, he gets paralyzed from the waist down. And he's immediately sent home. He uh, has to be catheterized by his mom. And he kind of becomes like an anti-war activist. And I don't want to spoil too much about the movie. I've probably already gone too far as it is if you haven't seen it. But as far as like a Tom Cruise movie from the 80s, it's definitely like probably the best one. Uh, it has his best acting. It's not cornball acting from him like in a lot of his other roles. It's definitely one of the standout movies of his and Oliver Stone's. I mean, I think in terms of being like a Vietnam-themed movie, Born on the Fourth of July is definitely a stronger film, I would say, than Platoon. Uh, he did three total Vietnam War movies. The He did like what's considered a Vietnam War trilogy. Um, let me look up on, on Wikipedia really quick to see what movie I'm thinking of. Yes, Heaven and Earth uh, was what's considered his third entry into his Vietnam War trilogy. It was probably like the least publicized of actually his like 90s films. And and to be honest, I actually have not seen it. It's one of his only films I've not seen. Um, I've even seen all of his early horror films, um, like The Hand with Michael Caine. <laughs> but yeah, it's weird. This movie barely got any publicity. It had a very small theatrical run. Um, it only played at 781 theaters. I don't know how s small that is, but it seemed like it really got very little publicity when it came out. Although the movie was budgeted at $33 million. So anyways, I'm going off on a tangent here. Heaven and Earth, 1993 film with Tommy Lee Jones, um, is the third entry into the Vietnam War trilogy. Born of the Fourth of July is considered the second part of his Vietnam War trilogy, and I think it's definitely the best. But without seeing Heaven and Earth, I guess I can't say that for certain but I would be willing to bet that it is the strongest one in the trilogy. Um, it has the best acting. It's a movie your parents can get into because it will remind them of the 60s and the Vietnam War era, the hippie era. It's kind of, in a way, like it's like almost like the liberal version of Forrest Gump. Like Forrest Gump takes you through like a certain section of slice of time of the Vietnam War era and shows sort of the tragedies of that, but also like it had like Forrest Gump to me is like conservative propaganda. Um, it, and, it, and it kind of, I guess the similarities only mirror that period of time from the sixties in the Vietnam war era. Lieutenant Dan is kind of like the main character, I guess in this film. Um, and I probably did it. That's a real doing a real disservice to born on the 4th of July to compare it to Forrest Gump. Um, cause it's, it has really good messages in it. It also kind of shows how the democratic party betrays, the anti-war cause and all this stuff. So I think it's a really strong film, really strong Oliver Stone film. So I definitely recommend it. Number seven on my list of films based on true events or real people is a 1983 Japanese anime film, Barefoot Gen. It's based on a manga comic book that was popular in Japan. It's from the perspective of a child 
Um, so this is sort of what makes it unique. Uh, during the final days of uh, World War II, his family and him live in Hiroshima. And basically what happens is it seems like actually really happy. They're sort of like separated from the war. His family is, um, you know, they, there's even one point in the film where they're sort of wondering why uh, they, their town has sort of been spared from the air raids. And they're feeling lucky and grateful. But of course, living in Hiroshima at the end of the war, this child named Jen Nakuaka witnesses the destruction of his entire town and most of his family at the hands of the American dropping of the nuke the first nuclear bomb ever used in war. So, you know, obviously this is a subject that I've been talking about for a while, um, the bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, basically borderline genocide. Um, it, it's one of the most horrendous moments ever in human history, uh, near the Holocaust, um, near a lot of other mass genocides. I think this film is really valuable, but from what I understand, they started showing it on Japanese public television. It, it would air a lot. Uh, they would play the full movie. And a lot of like sort of Japanese children sort of grew up having a, a very visceral understanding of what that experience was like, because the movie is actually very graphic. Um, and sadly, it's one of the only foreign films on here uh, that I could find that's actually a commentary on the United States. They're the ones who bombed Hiroshima, uh, a city mostly filled with Japanese civilians, women, children, families. So I won't really spoil the plot of this movie other than it's just centered around a child witnessing the destruction of the dropping of the nuclear bomb on Hiroshima. Coming in number six on my list of films based on true events or real people. And I guess maybe some would argue this is a little bit of a stretch, um, since this is loosely based on true events and real people. But as a film about the Iraq war and the propaganda and sort of the mach machinery that led to the Iraq war, this actually does a better job than any other film that I've seen of representing more or less the, some of the chain of events that probably happened. None of the people in it are real people like Dick Cheney or any of the neocons or anything like that. They're all fictional characters. Um, it's actually a comedy directed by Armando Lanucci called In the Loop from 2009. It's actually spun off from a really great television show, one of my favorite TV shows of all time, called The Thick of It. And it's basically a satire of, of not just American politics, but also sort of the British politics as well. The show Thick of It, The Thick of It, if you like The Office or shows like that, um, to me, the, uh, the Thick of It's like a much better version of The Office. It's all about the fucking disgustingness of politicians, the superficialness, the narcissism. It's a really vulgar show. It doesn't pull any punches. The character of Malcolm in the show, uh, played by Peter Capaldi, is absolutely amazing. It's one of the best characters ever in any TV show. Um, he's one of the most abusive, vulgar people ever depicted on on TV. Um, he's also in the, in the film In the Loop. So basically what the film In the Loop is loosely based on, because they don't actually mention a lot of the names and the things that occurred during the propaganda framework for the Iraq war, but it's loosely based on the, the UK government helping the US government cook up propaganda for greasing the skids for the Iraq war. And it's loosely based on things like the Downing Street memo and Curveball 
and things like that. And But what's really great about it is it just shows how it's all bullshit. Um, the think tanks really run everything in D.C., um, everybody gets together in these really, you know, innocuous sounding sort of ivory tower rooms in these Washington, D.C. buildings to actually lay out the Iraq war propaganda. It shows how the U.K. ultimately is really the United States' bitch. Um, it's not really like a, a bilateral relationship of any kind. It's it's really a fantastic movie. It's one of the best political satires, I think, of the 21st century. Highly recommend it. Um, it's a fucking hilarious film. It's a film even your parents could probably enjoy. A lot of, some of the jokes might go over their heads. It's got definitely has like a The Office or Curb Your Enthusiasm or I'm trying to think of other shows that like The Comeback. It's not shot as a documentary, like a mockumentary, like a Christopher Guest movie, but it feels like one. It's all sort of shaky cam, fly on the wall. A lot of it seems partially improvised. But it's a brilliantly done presentation. Uh, the thick of it, I would say, is a better representation of the comedy, ultimately, that Armando Lanucci and the other people involved in the show um, are really great at doing. But In the Loop is also just a great introduction to the show. If you're a little bit hesitant to get into British comedy, if it's not your thing, um, In the Loop is like a great portal into that because the whole concept is it's the UK government people trying to help cook up the Iraq war propaganda for the American uh, government people and think tank people. Coming to number five on my list is a 2005 thriller. Uh, it's directed by Fernando Mireles. The film stars Ralph Fiennes, Rachel Weiss. It's called The Constant Gardener. The film is based on a book of the same name, written in 2001. It takes place in Kenya, and basically what it involves is this husband's wife dies in what appears to be an accident. They're both um, diplomats. His wife is actually working for a corporation. Um, she's doing humanitarian work. Her, his wife dies in this sort of mysterious accident. He's kind of got his head in the clouds. He's not really... He's constantly gardening as part of the uh, plot of the, the uh, movie. Um, it's sort of symbolic of the fact that he's just not really... That's skeptical of what happens to his wife. Um, he writes it off as an accident. But then he learns that she had uncovered um, this corporate scandal involving uh, unwitting participants in a human medical pharmaceutical trial experiment in Africa, and they were doing it secretly. Her husband basically unravels this conspiracy that leads directly to the top. I set out doing this podcast originally laying out these rules for how I would rate these movies based on their sort of political ideology and the strength of their political message. And this film definitely fits in sort of that same zone as Edge of Darkness, which I rated my favorite political thriller of all time, Edge of Darkness with Mel Gibson. The Constant Gardener definitely is in that same wheelhouse, but I would say it's almost a stronger film because it is loosely based on something that actually did happen in the 1990s. Pfizer, the company that made Viagra, famously made Viagra, put out a drug called Troven uh, that was used in clinical trials in Kano, Nigeria. And they did this uh, without telling anybody that this drug was basically toxic. There was They knew uh, that this drug was dangerous. Uh, 11 children apparently died in this trial. 
A bunch of people got blind and brain damaged from this trial. Um, but they just kept trying to cover it up and cover it up and cover it up. Um, eventually, it was determined by a medical panel. They were illegally administering this drug, giving this drug to people without their consent and giving it to their children without their consent. And this drug actually even hit the U.S. market at one point, but was eventually withdrawn because it was determined to be toxic. So I think this movie is very strong. Um, I'm not really familiar with the filmmaker behind it, but I believe it actually did win some, uh, or it was nominated for some Academy Awards. Um, so it was actually one of the only films on this list that I'm reading to you. I think Born on the Fourth of July it was also, but as far as like a modern post-2000s film that's on any of these lists that was nominated, this is actually, I think it's the only one. Um, it was nominated for four Academy Awards. Best Supporting Actress, Rachel Weiss. She won an Oscar actually for it. It was nominated for Best Film Editing. It was nominated for Best Original Score and Best Adapted Screenplay. But yeah, highly recommend The Constant Gardener from 2005. Ranking number four on my list of political films based on true events or real people is one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, it's the 1999 film, The Insider. Now, for those who subscribe to my Patreon page or who catch my live streams, um, who follow me on Twitter, I did an entire live stream a discussion about the film The Insider with uh, Pierce Redman of Porkins Policy Radio. And you can go check that out if you're a Patreon subscriber of mine. The Insider stars Al Pacino in what I think is probably one of his best, most understated roles. He acts uncharacteristically toned down. And it's it's totally based on all real people. Um, so actually the top three films on this list are all directly based on true, like real events and real people. They're not even loosely based. They are directly based on them. And this is one of the strongest things I think about this film because I didn't even know anything about this subject. I didn't know anything about this controversy that happened. I didn't know anything about this scandal at all, except for I always knew that cigarettes were bad, that they caused cancer, and that all the CEOs of all the tobacco companies testified to Congress that nicotine was not a drug and was not addictive. So I already knew all that stuff and how much... You know, that was bullshit and how the tobacco, big tobacco ran all these different things and were super powerful. So, but it wasn't until I watched this movie did I realize that there was actually like a, a, a very interesting scandal that happened involving 60 Minutes um, essentially being censored and how a whistleblower from the tobacco company Brown and Williamson was being threatened with not just lawsuits for breaking his confidentiality agreement, but also... Um, for breaking his confidentiality agreement that he could actually be arrested in certain states. Um, Al Pacino plays Lowell Bergman, the producer of 60 Minutes, based on a real guy named Lowell Bergman who comes from Ramparts Magazine. He's actually kind of a lefty, um, probably one of the better mainstream media producers of the modern age. Um, I, I, I'm actually not super familiar with his work, but I know that he's actually done some rather good stuff um, over time, including th what this movie is actually about. Um, it actually has Christopher Plummer again, uh, who, who popped up on this list earlier. I gave you an honorable mention of the movie Agent of Influence uh, from this same list of uh, political films based on real people or true events. Christopher Plummer appears here again playing 
an amazing, amazing representation of uh, Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes, who's actually in the movie quite a bit. So Christopher Plummer and Al Pacino sort of play off of each other as being the producer of 60 Minutes based on a real guy, you know, and Mike Wallace, the host of 60 Minutes. Fucking excellent job all around. Russell Crowe actually plays a guy who's 20 years his senior when he shot this film. But basically, it's just a really great thriller slash drama about how this whistleblower, who's actually not even represented in the movie as being like a nice or a good, noble person necessarily, but who, who just feels compelled to tell the truth about this thing that sort of got up in his craw about how these tobacco companies are literally putting like flavoring ingredients that cause cancer into their cigarettes. They're spiking the nicotine with, with ammonia to make it hit the blood-brain barrier faster. He has all these really specific complaints about how he thinks that they're making cigarettes even more harmful when they don't have to. You know, it almost seems like not that, that big of a deal in the bigger scheme of things, but the craziest part was that tobacco companies spent like over $20 million or something like that trying to ruin him digging up everything they could about his life with PIs, um, th extremely expensive teams of lawyers, um, constantly threatening him, serving him with paperwork. Um, and he even got tons of death threats as well. It's a very interesting story. It's based on a real guy played by Russell Crowe named Jeffrey Weigand, who was a whistleblower at Brown and Williamson. Won't really spoil anything else about the movie, but I will say, since I already gave an honorable mention to the film Kill the Messenger, I feel like Kill the Messenger, what's the weakest part about it, and the only reason it actually didn't make it on this list, is because it kind of feels like the people who made Kill the Messenger wanted to make a movie like The Insider, but they kind of like emulated it poorly and didn't really build up the tension and the atmosphere as well as a movie like The Insider did. And since The Insider's based on something like way less, I guess, salacious, it's not about CIA drug trafficking, it does a really, really good job of really ratcheting up the tension and making you feel like there's real stakes. His whole livelihood is in danger. His family, I mean, it's a, it, it does a better job than Kill the Messenger, which is kind of a shame because I feel like Kill the Messenger, maybe under the hand of a different director perhaps, could have actually made quite a powerful thriller sort of dramatic film um like the insider but uh insider ranks number three on my favorite political films based on real events or real people i'm sorry to say guys that i actually got the count wrong i already am at number three um so i don't know it sounded like i might have skipped one and i actually did um, because Milk technically is at number nine on this list. So let's just say number 10 on this list was Agent of Influence. As you know, instead of being an honorable mention, Agent of Influence makes number 10. Shift everything I just said down one, one digit. And now we're at number two on my list. The Oliver Stone film, JFK. The 1991 film, JFK, especially the director's cut, is a cinematic masterpiece arguably one of the best films of the 1990s made by any American director. Uh, I genuinely think JFK is one of the greatest modern films ever made. Not just because I think it's a masterpiece in filmmaking, also because 
it had such a huge cultural impact and it actually did move the needle on sort of the JFK assassination debate in this country. It generated a lot of controversy. Oliver Stone definitely took a lot of heat for it. But at the same time, the movie is a star-studded cast. It was extremely hyped up for the time. It was a cultural phenomenon when it came out. I mean, Oliver Stone was absolutely at the top of his game. He just made The Doors, made Born on the Fourth of July. He was on fire at this point in his career. And making JFK in 1991, I mean, it, it, it brought back the subject completely in the public consciousness of was JFK assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald, the lone gunman, or was he assassinated by some kind of government conspiracy that involved all these weird-ass people? I mean, I don't even know where to begin with JFK. The, the, it's, it's one of the best John Williams scores, for starters. Uh, it doesn't sound like a lot of other John Williams scores. It sounds, if you didn't know it was John Williams, you wouldn't necessarily guess that. Joe Pesci does a mind-blowing performance in it. Tommy Lee Jones, uh, amazing performance. Kevin Bacon, even John Candy is in it, playing one of his only serious roles ever, playing the, the role of uh, the lawyer um, that was mysteriously hired, not just for Lee Harvey Oswald, but also was hired by Clay Bertrand, who actually turned out to be Clay Shaw. The movie is absolutely masterfully done, um, just as a cinematic presentation i mean the movie basically it, it starts with the assassination of jfk it, it shows the sort of them the stock footage what's actually wonderful about the movie is it sort of the beginning of oliver stones and he kind of lost control of the style later with like natural born killers but it's the beginning of oliver stone intercutting a lot of weird b-roll and stock footage into the film for like a almost like a psychedelic effect and what he does with JFK is he actually intercuts a ton of real footage from the assassinations and from the news during that time period. It really nails it. And, I mean, actually one of the standout performances in the film, of course, is not, you know, I'm not going to say Kevin Costner, even though he's actually great in it as well, is Gary Oldman playing Lee Harvey Oswald. It's one of the best performances, I think, of all time. It's almost like it's so good in the film that I almost forget what Lee Harvey Oswald looks like and acts like in real life after seeing Gary Oldman just knock it out of the fucking park. And it's one of those films that no matter how many times I see it, like it's still just is absolutely riveting to me. It fills me with emotion. There are p points in the movie where I still well up every time I see it. I mean, it's one of those rare movies that really resonates with me on a deep level like every single time i watch it it doesn't get old i used to even just throw it on as like kind of a hangout movie while i would do stuff i mean i've probably seen it you know not sitting watching it at my full attention but i probably put the movie on and played it from beginning to end over 150 times easily definitely check out jfk if you have not seen it i'd say it's the closest oliver stone gets to reaching like the greats like kubrick and other filmmakers like that. Uh, uh, JFK is possibly the closest, but not the closest. Um, the closest movie, uh, I think actually one of the greatest films of all time, is a spiritual sequel to JFK, also made by Oliver Stone, and my favorite political film of all time based on true events or real people is the 1995 Oliver Stone film, Nixon. 
Part of the reason why I think this film is stronger than JFK is because even though JFK is sort of a web, a conspiracy web, it has all these little facets and inner working pieces. It's kind of like a Swiss watch of a movie in a way, the way the narrative is constructed. Nixon, I feel like, is extremely layered. It's a very dense film. Even the screenplay for it, I mean, they didn't even end up filming, I think, like something like 20% of the screenplay. It's it's one of the longest screenplays I've ever seen. I actually bought it in book form. It was actually written by Oliver Stone, Christopher Wilkinson, and Stephen J. Reveal. And Richard Nixon is played by Anthony Hopkins, which seems kind of weird maybe. If you haven't seen the movie and you're and you you're just kind of trying to imagine how that'd be, but man, he he really nails the performance. There's a few times in the movie where his Nixon accent kind of shifts a little bit into like a British accent. So I will say, like I just from an objective standpoint, there are some parts of it where it's like, okay, I he sounds a little tiny bit British right here, but other than those few minor quibbles with with the acting of um anthony hopkins it's fucking amazing so you know wikipedia says this is sort of like in a trilogy of films made about presidents that oliver stone did but i could never count w as part of this trilogy it just it's just such so much pales in comparison to some of oliver stone's other films about just politics or american society um i just can't even put w even anywhere close to it it's just i I just think it's a very poorly made rushed film um even though i I think josh brolin's actually great as george w bush i think the film is not so great i think it's actually one of oliver stone's weaker films it feels rushed it feels kind of pointless same with uh cheney or what was it called dick i don't even is it called cheney or no it's called vice (laughs) the uh the movie with christian bale i felt the same way about that if you're going to make a George W. Bush movie, make it like this. To have um, Oliver Stone come back and make a third movie about the U.S. presidency as poor as W. is just was just a really big disappointment for me because I think Nixon is the best film ever made about the U.S. presidency by far. There isn't really a f- good film, I would say, about the JFK presidency. JFK is not about the JFK presidency. He dies off camera in the opening scene of the movie. It's about Jim Garrison, the district attorney who basically cracked open the JFK assassination case. Anthony Hopkins, Bob Hoskins, uh, Joan Allen is really good. I don't normally like her. Ed Harris is in it playing E. Howard Hunt. He doesn't have a very big role, but his role in it's really good. David Hyde Pierce is in it. James Woods is in it. J.T. Walsh is in it playing John Ehrlichman guy who was implicated in the watergate scandal as well the movie is just fantastic it's got great casting and it's also in some ways even more hallucinatory and abstract than jfk is it sort of fits in the middle of where natural born killers i don't even i wouldn't say u-turn is i mean i guess u-turn is kind of also similar but natural born killers is a very hallucinatory movie that just cuts in a ton of crazy stock footage jfk does that a little bit Nixon came in between both of those films and sort of strikes this balance, which I don't think Oliver Stone really did in any other movie, where there's just this like crazy coming at you, you know, changing of the style of the footage. So when it flashes back to like Nixon as a child, it goes back to this like blown out black and white footage. 
It just has a ton of other stock footage, news footage intercut. These really fast sort of hallucinatory psychedelic edits that I think really push the movie along. Things are also shot out of sequence. So there's parts of the movie that might be a little confusing and jarring, but it mostly is linear. It's a fantastic fucking movie. And it's definitely, I think, as far as all the movies on this list that sort of made it close to the number one slots on all these lists, The Day the Earth Stood Still, Terminator, Dr. Strangelove, JFK, um, Edge of Darkness being there, I think it's definitely one of the most powerful political films ever made. And I actually wanted to mention something else, just in case people caught this on my last episode. I completely skipped over, and I must mention this now just because um, I would feel bad for not mentioning it, because it's actually a really important film in this larger lexicon of political films, and especially prophetic ones that really, like, when you watch them now, it's almost like, oh, shit, how did this movie predict everything? Um, but it, but when I was mentioning my top 10 fictional political thrillers and dramas, in between Mother Night, which was at position number three, and Edge of Darkness, which is at position one, was the 1998 film starring Will Smith, Gene Hackman, Jason Lee, called Enemy of the State. Oh, it also stars John Voight. Enemy of the State is a great movie. Uh, it's kind of more of like a popcorn movie. It's a little bit, it is schlocky. It has all the right ingredients that we've been talking about. It's anti-government. It's anti-surveillance state. It's very actually prophetic about what's to come in the future. There's even a lot of sort of conspiracy people who think that this movie um, was sort of pre-programming by uh, uh, like agencies like the NSA and CIA to get us used to the future of surveillance in the form of like a horror thriller movie. Definitely check Enemy of the State out if you have not seen that. Um, it's it's a really good commentary on the surveillance age, even though it was made in 1998. So that sort of concludes our broadcast of all my favorite political films. I hope you enjoyed me rambling on and on about what I like about these movies. I hope I didn't spoil too much about movies you haven't seen. I hope when I did give spoiler warnings, you remember to fast forward and you don't get angry at me for any of the potential spoilers I have dropped into this broadcast. Even though the movie Scrooge is based off a Charles Dickens Christmas tale or a Christmas story or whatever it's called, an American classic that I thought or assumed everybody knew, um, I actually got somebody really angry at me once for spoiling the ending of Scrooge, which is the same ending as the Charles Dickens classic. So that being said, I'm super careful about what I say about any movies these days, even though you should know certain things just you know you should have some awareness of pop culture so i think there's a limitation to that i i do think there are some instances where it's okay to spoil things i think it's okay to say that darth vader is luke skywalker's father i don't think that's a spoiler so yeah things like that i'm okay with that but i other people apparently aren't uh, who, who wait until their mid-30s to watch movies like empire strikes back which is just bizarre to me but anyways thanks for listening Thank you so much for being donors and patrons to Media Roots Radio. We really appreciate your support. We couldn't do it without you. 